I would like to make a few comments. I don't have to tell you things are bad. Everybody knows things are bad. We see Americans hating each other, fighting each other, killing each other at home. There is a religious war going on in this country. It is a cultural war. This war is for the soul of America. Because of the way this society is organized, you have to expect that there are going to be such explosions. Our side, our side, our side. We are a people in a quandary about the present. We are a people in search of our future. And as we see and hear these things, millions of Americans cry out in anguish. Did we come all this way for this? It all seems a long way from a time when politics was a national passion and sometimes even fun. a larger scale to fulfill the promise of America. We are met here as Americans, not as Democrats or Republicans, to solve that problem. Welcome to the Pothole Problem Podcast. I'm your host, Jack Miller. For this week's episode, we go to one of the most inside corners of the political world, the land of public opinion research. My guest is John Horvick, who's a pollster for one of Oregon's most successful public opinion research firms, DHM Research. After talking to John about the development of his own political attitudes and his journey through the world of political outrage, I asked him to take us behind the scenes and provide the insider's perspective on polling and the use of the kind of research his firm produces. I think he dispels a number of common misconceptions about how public opinion research is conducted and particularly how it's used. But you're not going to learn any of the stuff that John has to tell you unless we get to the interview. So here we go. John Horvick on the Pothole Problem Podcast, episode 20. Welcome to the White Tiger Studio, John. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. So is it fair to say that you are a public opinion researcher? That's what I do. That's what I tell people I do. Why don't you just tell me just a little bit about what that involves sure. and kinds of things that you do to get at public opinion? Sure. Public opinion, yeah, I suppose you could define it different ways. The way I like to say is my job to ask people what sort of community they want to live in. Where it maybe departs from, say, a more academic setting is, first, we often work with clients who have an immediate need, and that client could be anything from a city to an advocacy organization to uh, a corporation around public policy issues. We ask people different sorts of questions in different sorts of ways, but f- you know, for the work that we do at the company I'm at, DHM Research, it really is sort of trying to figure out what do people value, what do they prioritize, what are their concerns, what do they want to see improved. It's, it's issues around that, you know, the types of policy issues that we touch at my firm would be anything from education to transportation to healthcare to, you know, taxes to things that are going to be on the ballot. So you're out there trying to figure out what people are thinking about the political world and your mm-hmm. clients come from different sectors, yeah. public interest groups, governments, and companies that mm-hmm. have an interest in public policy. Yeah. So I'm going to actually turn the tables on you today because what I want to do is I want to find out what you think from your perspective uh-huh. where you're situated in the world of politics. I'll jump right in sure. to the question I ask all my guests, which is what is something that used to outrage you and no longer does and why the change? I struggle with an answer, I'll be honest. It, it, maybe it's dispositional that I wasn't too outraged, but I think one thing that I felt like a real 
probably moral superiority early in my sort of adulthood was, you know, I always been very interested in politics and public policy and civic engagement. Looking back, I think I really held my nose up about that about myself and looked down at others who didn't share that interest, the sense that they were letting their community down by not acting or paying attention the same way I was. I think as I've gotten older, one is just an awareness of the, the stresses and times that are put on people that, you know, didn't exist when you're younger. You have, you know, you can pick and choose, I think, a little bit more when you pay attention to the other and it could be a reflection of where we are in 2020 which is so much of the political dialogue that happens nowadays is really focused on things that aren't the most important thing for an individual citizen to be focused on the shiny object which is washington dc which just grows brighter and brighter over the years it's not just a trump phenomenon it was occurring before then you know, there's a tension on the day-to-day political headline or scandal, or I'm going to I'll call it noise, and not nearly enough attention is paid in the media, and I think in our, in our dialogue around things that are happening locally, things that people can touch and get involved with and get engaged with. Uh, so I think that there are just like factors in the world that make people, at the one hand, really want to pay attention to what's happening in D.C., and the other hand, sort of want to turn away from it. So two things. One is just like people's time, you're stretched. They can only have the opportunity to pay attention to things. The other thing is just that the political environment doesn't lend itself to the sort of engagement that would actually be healthy. For a lot of people, it's obnoxious. And uh, I, I think as time goes on, I feel that more, see that more, you know, acknowledge it more than I did in the past. You understand why people would turn away yeah. from a political dialogue that is obnoxious, yeah. unhealthy, divisive, mm-hmm. ugly, and loud. Mm-hmm. Also, it sounds like what you said earlier is that just as you've matured, yeah. you see, you understand that politics is only one part of a balanced diet of yeah. a human life. For sure. You know, follow your interests for sure. It's yeah, obviously this isn't true of everybody. People should do what they're interested in. But but that's a change. That's sort of a high, something that I would have upset me in the past with people are paying quote unquote the right amount of attention and and less so now. So you have been a politically aware and engaged person for a long time Mm -hmm. since your early form of outrage was that people weren't engaged enough. So that's actually a great form of youthful outrage that people aren't voting and they're not paying attention. They're not getting involved Mm -hmm. in their communities. What is it that made you a civically engaged young person? I've asked myself that question. It's not that my my parents or my my siblings were uninterested, but I wouldn't say like the common conversations around the dinner table were not politics. They were not, we didn't like sit at the breakfast table and read the newspaper together. And, you know, dinners weren't all of those sorts of conversations. My parents were both teachers. Earlier in their careers, they were active in the union. When I was sort of aware, they were less so, I think, turned off from the unions. There were some stories that they told about themselves as, as young people and as a young couple when they were really married about their civic engagement, their professional engagement in ways that I I think stuck with me that, you know, my parents who were, you know, I admire so deeply, but I didn't see it in their day-to-day activity when I was sort of growing up, but it was a story that they were proud of of themselves. And that stuck with me in some regards. And then otherwise, I don't know, just dispositionally for who knows why. I mean, people do different things, but if I had to like tell the story would be it would be that. You didn't grow up in a political household, but you had parents who you could sense an engagement in their past Mm -hmm. that inspired you. Mm -hmm. What about some early experiences with the political world that might have been formative in creating a momentum for you to take that from your young self into your adult self? In school, I got really interested in this sort of notion of social capital as a sort of academic pursuit. So the ideas that our social relationships have an impact in our outcomes, not just our dollars and cents. When I moved to Portland in 2003 from from the Midwest, uh, one thing I did early on was to get involved with the City Club of Portland. 
an organization that I, I cherish and adore, and I think it's done a lot of good work for the community. And you know, I just found out in with that in that organization, and at least for me in the city of Portland, I don't want to say it's true for everybody. I found out if I rose my hand to do something, I I could do it, and I would be asked to come back. And um, you were a newcomer. I was a newcomer. And you found it easy to get I, inside. I found it very easy to get inside. Again, I, I do want to, like, I am who I am. I had was in Portland at a certain time, and maybe that wouldn't be true of other people, but for me, it was true. Uh, but for people who are wondering, like, okay, how high of a barrier to entry yeah. is the world of political yeah. engagement, at least in your experience, here in Portland, yeah. it was relatively low. For me, it was very low. I found an organization that was engaged in political civic affairs. They were looking for people to be involved, too. I showed up. I was willing to do work. I kept on coming back. And there was no kind of, well, you're not really from here, so why don't you just watch and learn for a while? In fact, if I'm like being really honest, the trajectory of like my civic sort of space that I filled, I was, especially when I first got to Portland, so I was 25 when I first moved to Portland, had the advantage of being that young guy who older folks were looking to have be engaged, right? There was this like, there was a, a real excitement that someone young was involved. And so I, you know, could could ride that wave for a while. And well, I think I, that's pretty common. I think yeah. that people who have been in politics for a while, civic engagement yeah. at whatever angle, they want to recruit youthful mm-hmm. energy. And so they're welcoming to yeah. people who sort of self-recruit. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I'm still, I still think that Portland is a low barrier. I still know that I can get engaged in the ways that I want to. You know, as I've gotten older, sort of that advantage of being young in some respects has, has waned. But, you know, I just, I just found that it was easy, not in the sense that there was no work to do, but that for people who were willing to show up and do the work, there was a real willingness for others to invite you in. That, people that is, weren't holding you back by yeah. saying, wait around, do no. you know, stay in the mailroom for a while, be seen but not heard. There was no. not that. No, not at all. And that's good to hear because I think that a lot of people who might be interested in a higher level of civic mm-hmm. engagement than just casting a ballot mm-hmm. maybe feel like it's too much. Mm-hmm. Politics is it's a heavy endeavor. Mm-hmm. It's very time consuming. Mm-hmm. There's the old guard that's mm-hmm. keeping you out. So your experience... Mm-hmm was not like. I would say that I also had low expectations about changing the world. So I sort of went into these activities thinking that I could be part of a large organization that was going to move the needle some. And I think that I was part of a large organization that, that moved the needle some and I played an important role in that. I didn't have an expectation that I was going to radically change Portland or... And homelessness or institutional racism or patriarchy. I was quite satisfied with small achievements as part of a group. That was rewarding to me. So do you think that the notion that some people have either high expectations or these sort of really big Mm -hmm. desires, in your experience, I mean, you do public opinion Mm -hmm. research, do you think that that's something that holds them back from deciding to get more engaged? Well, there are real problems and everybody is different, but the reason someone might get involved is to try to ameliorate some real problems in the world. But, you know, most of the things that people are attracted to, get excited about participate in, are just really challenging. And so it's complicated and made worse by the sort of my earlier point is the things that I get attention in the world right now are these international and national structural things that are, it's not that they're impossible to change, but if you want easy wins... You know, pay attention to your neighborhood and your city. And they're still not going to be very easy wins. They're still not going to be very but easy wins. they're going to be wins. But you have an opportunity to be more efficacious there and, you know, to, I think, feel like and, in fact, be an actor in that change in, in a way that's just so much harder nationally.
You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast, created by White Tiger Productions. At White Tiger Productions, we create experiences. If you have an idea for a podcast, a workshop, or a show of any kind, we'll help you go from concept to execution. We provide creative direction and production support. We've got a podcast studio, writers and storytellers, sound engineers and editors, designers, videographers, hosts, creative coaches, everything you need to manifest your creative potential. You name it or even vaguely describe it, and we'll take you from dream to finished product. White Tiger Productions. You can do what you think, and we can help you. Visit us at youcandowhatyouthink.com and tell us what you're thinking about. Now, let me ask you something that's a little maybe more in line with your professional Mm -hmm. expertise. Do you sense that there's a hunger among people for greater opportunities for civic engagement, for a healthier political discourse, for a way of relating to politics that doesn't focus on the national, the scandalous, the outrageous, the things that are too big to be really touched? Or is there not that hunger? Is there a hunger? I mean, I do want to believe that there is. I, you know, I think we should continue to, to support organizations, support individuals who are hoping to create them. But the, I think people, generalizing here, but I think like on the whole, I think people are, are a bit lost in, in where they could turn to make that impact. But the cultural conversation just isn't there either. So that's just not, I think, where the hunger and drive is. The hunger and drive is around being part of this this national or international conversation. Right. We don't have a culture that really validates mm-hmm. local community mm-hmm. activism mm-hmm. for regular people. This is not unusual at all. You can look back at voting patterns for decades and decades, really, throughout American history, I suppose. But we had a billion dollars worth of taxes on the ballot this last November between some metro proposals and, and uh, some other some other things on the ballot. And like Turner was like, what? I don't know, 18, 19, 20%, 30%. Like, you know, there was a, a conversation that we could have been having around some major tax policy this last go around, but there wasn't a big conversation locally about about those issues. Well, no, that actually brings me back to your sort yeah. of earlier outrage when you were younger yeah. that people weren't engaged. Yeah. And, you know, it's showing up here just a little <laughs> bit when you're saying we only had 18% turnout. Does it continue to outrage you a little bit that people aren't on these big issues getting engaged and turning out? Or do you really understand and accept that, yeah, okay, it would be great if they did, but yeah, I understand why they don't. Well, some of it, like, you know, there's somewhat technical issues about parks and, you know, they were going to be new taxes, but old taxes were expiring, so your rates were going to go up. Like, it happened to not be big conflict in the community about them, so maybe it was a totally rational thing to do to pay relatively low attention to them, let the, you know, the most engaged people sort of weigh in on them, follow what were their opinion leaders' recommendation. Like, that probably, from an average voter, was the appropriate response. But to answer your question, like, is there a hunger? Like, I have a tough time also looking at those results and saying, yeah, the public is really, like, energized to get more engaged on on some of those issues. I would like to kind of go behind the scenes and ask you, what is the use that is made of the data that you gather by your mm-hmm. clients. So the firm that I work for, we don't work for parties, we don't work for political parties, and we don't work for political candidates, but we do work on issues. And so primarily local and state issues, but I'll just give you a, a couple examples. We tend to work on political campaigns earlier in the cycle. I just sort of finished up a series of projects for communities across the state 
who are looking to put things on the ballot in the May primary. And so a lot of local governments will put funding measures or other policy measures on the ballot in May. Some, of course, will be in November too, but the May primary is an important one. So work that we might do is work with the local community to ask the voters you know, whether or not they are interested in taxes going up to fund roads, for example, because city council members are going to need to make a decision about whether or not to put that on the ballot. They're going to need some information about, you know, what do voters value in, in that investment? Do they want to see safety projects prioritized, for example, or congestion release, reduction projects prioritized? Are they sensitive about cost? Are they willing to pay $5 per thousand on their property tax bill or $1 per thousand on the property tax bill? And then what sort of packages can you design around those different appetites for what you're willing to spend? So this is kind of policy-oriented mm-hmm. type of research mm-hmm. that gives policymakers the ability to understand what the public has an appetite mm-hmm. for and what they're willing to accept and maybe also what they're most concerned about. Mm-hmm. And we all ask questions about reasons why, too. So that can help inform persuasion campaign uh, in the future, too. We do the same sorts of things for advocacy organizations who are looking to put something on the ballot. You know, we worked, as an example, back in the day, we worked on the, uh, did some polling for legalizing marijuana, and that really helped inform sort of a decision around which election cycle to go on the ballot, what are the things that the campaign should be saying, and to which groups of voters are going to be most persuadable or not. It can also be used for fundraising purposes. So if you get a, a number back that suggests, I don't know, let's say, just make up a number, say 70% of the voters support allowing people to pump their own gas. That's more sort of my pet peeve. I also share that pet peeve. But if you wanted to run a campaign on that, then you could take it to, the, you know, that result to potential funders to say, you know, this is an investment that could really make a difference. This is something that could be successful. And so it can play a role in that as well. So public opinion research functions a lot at the back end of politics, mm-hmm. whereas most of us see it at the front end of the media presentation level. And we mm-hmm. mostly see either opinions about big issues like gun control mm-hmm. or abortion, or we see presidential or congressional mm-hmm. approval ratings or who's winning the mm-hmm. horse race. But it sounds like there's a lot of other uses in policymaking mm-hmm. and the persuasion industry. Mm-hmm. For sure. Uh, something else that happens, I assume this happens in, in every place that has ballot measures, but the words really matter, especially early on in the cycle. If you're helping a campaign, you get so many words in the title and so many words in the summary is to figure out, help them figure out what are the, the either the key words or key programmatic aspects that are most important to highlight. So if you're going to make an argument to, a, say, a city attorney to a secretary of state about what should be in those ballot titles uh, or in summaries, you have some research to back up what's going to be most persuasive to voters or important to voters. That could help inform that too. Now, you know, you've used the word persuasion and persuasive a number of times. As a human, I'm open to persuasion, mm-hmm. but I do not want to be manipulated. And I think that's pretty common. Mm-hmm. There are going to be people who are going to hear the word persuasion yeah. and they're going to really think manipulation. Yeah, so so I recoil at that word and that sort of notion. I will just like, that is my gut instinct. I will acknowledge there can be a fine line between those two. I like to think that I don't engage in that, nor do my clients engage in that. But, you know, some of it is a matter of, I suppose, a matter of perspective. That difference does really matter. And do you find that that affects how people respond to your craft? That they see you as a handmaiden mm-hmm. to manipulators as opposed to providing information to policymakers and persuaders. You know, it's interesting. If I sit down in an airplane and I, you know, sometimes you get into those conversations, a small talk about what you do, and I get a little hesitant about saying that I'm a pollster. There are those who are super fascinated, and that's probably half to a majority who are interested. And of course, some, a lot of people don't care. But there are some, like, you know, really do feel offended by 
politics by polls or politics by focus groups in the sense that they're being used by politicians and campaigns to lie or to mislead or to keep those in power in power. Like any tool can be misused. So the fact that they feel that way, I can't say that, that those sorts of uses don't exist. They have and they will in the future. Your research might be used by city council members who mm-hmm. are deciding whether or not to put something on the ballot. But if you are a policymaker and say, okay, we need to fix our roads, what's the most palatable way mm-hmm. to the population to get the revenue mm-hmm. needed to fix our mm-hmm. roads? That actually doesn't sound bad. So we're talking about this with the assumption that someone goes into a research project, gathers information, and then moves forward towards their goal say that often isn't the case. Often what happens is people go in with hoping that the public might be on their side and we find out they ain't. And it's the public's opinion which stops things going forward. Uh, That happens, I'm not sure if it's as much as the other, but it's quite often where public opinion is the stop to things moving forward, not the other way around. And so when we're doing polling for a campaign, we typically look to have support on an issue early days, something north of 60% to say, you know, this is a real chance of passing. Very often, doing the work actually stops things from happening rather than, than, than giving people guidance for how to, how to make that change. That goes against the common conception of how politics works and also how polls function mm-hmm. in our world. And that's, you know, it's one of the things I'm, I'm glad to have an insider mm-hmm. on the podcast mm-hmm. to give us that perspective. Mm-hmm. And I think that we've learned a lot in this interview, and I really want to thank you for coming in. Glad to be here. Thank you. You're listening to the Pothole Problem Podcast with Jack Miller. Keep up the good work. That's the interview for this week. I want to thank John for sitting down in the studio with me and also for spending two hours guest lecturing to my public opinion class at Portland State University. I wish we would have had time in this interview to learn everything that John knows about polling and that I hope my students were able to get out of his lecture. I also want to thank everybody who continues to listen to the podcast and to new listeners who are now joining me on this journey through the human experience of life in the rough world of American politics. Next week's episode is the finale for the winter season, so I'm going to bring Zane back into the studio to interview me about what I've learned from the guests I've had on the show for the past couple of months. Until then, here's the song. It's Moon Boots by Everyday Junior. Thanks for listening. <laughs>